Let's start off with a brief recap on our last episode. We had some major developments in the investigation, the new direction that Strikeforce Roseanne had taken, which focused on the foster mother as the main suspect. This prompted an extensive search of the area around the foster grandmother's house in Kendall, where he disappeared, as well as two other locations a short distance away in the bush. That search was still ongoing when our last episode was released. This new direction also prompted them to issue our podcast with a subpoena, as we mentioned, for all of our research and recordings, which we obviously complied with. Separately, we also spoke about the assault charges that were laid against William's foster parents. There's not a lot we can legally say about that at this point, and we will explain why later in the episode. So now that the search has concluded, we wanted to update our listeners on where the investigation now sits and what might come next. With me again to talk through all of this today is Associate Professor Xanthi Mallet, who is a criminologist from the University of Newcastle. Welcome again, Xanthi. Good to be here. Thanks, Leah. So let's recap the search that was obviously ongoing during our last episode. That search went for a month, more than four weeks in total. Dozens of officers were involved, along with SES crews who helped with clearing the bush. The weather actually hampered a lot of that search, which was part of the reason why it dragged on for so long. There was a lot of rain soaking the ground several days in a row, so that did lead to some delays where they were unable to continue until it stopped raining. In searching those bushland areas, they searched creek beds, they had divers combing through waterways, they dug up and sifted through tons of soil. Anything they found that could have any possible relevance was bagged and taken away for examination, including some red, blue and black cloth. That's obviously been tested to determine if it was part of the Spider-Man suit William was last seen wearing. They also found some bone fragment that was taken away for testing, but given we've also heard nothing more about that, we can assume that wasn't human. In searching the property where he actually disappeared from, being the foster grandmother's house, they also dug up the garden bed underneath the balcony, apparently operating on the theory that he fell from the balcony and died. They also used ground-penetrating radar to examine what was under the concrete in the garage. They searched through the water tank on the property. As we mentioned in the previous episode, they also seized a car that belonged to William's foster grandmother at the time, and they made no secret of the fact they believed it could have been used to move his body. They took that away for forensic examination, and again, we've heard no more about whether they discovered anything in the car. Just before the search wrapped up, the outgoing police commissioner, Mick Fuller, gave this interview. We have taken 15 tonnes of uh, soil and other pieces of evidence or potential evidence back for forensic investigation. We're leaving nothing unturned in that search. We want to be certain that the search has been done as thorough as possible. There could be weeks and weeks of searching through that before we have any answers. We're all staying hopeful, particularly with the search continuing, that we can find answers for William and his family in the community. The media was there watching the search in very close proximity the entire time. Everything they found, examined and bagged was witnessed by reporters and camera crews who were very much invited by the police to be there. So most, if not all, of the discoveries that were made were well documented as soon as they were discovered. But to our knowledge, nothing that was found has so far been proven to have any relevance to the case. The search wrapped up in mid-December and the day the officers left that search site, they left a rake stuck in the ground with rocks positioned around the base of it to hold it up and members of the search team actually signed the top of it and on the handle they left a message that said, we will never give up. 
So this was a very disappointing end to the search for everyone involved and for the public who had hoped this would finally be the conclusion. Police went into this seemingly feeling extremely hopeful. They spoke to the media at the beginning of it using language that really gave the public the impression they were onto something, that they knew where to look, that they were confident they were going to find William or at least some evidence to suggest what happened to him. As the search dragged on over that month, it became more and more evident that was not going to happen. So, Xanthi, I really want to hear your take on how this has all played out. Police went into this very confidently, all but promising the public an outcome. Not only that, they invited the media along, they sent out press releases announcing the search, they did a big press conference where they made some very bold, confident statements. They allowed the media to film the searchers doing their work from very close proximity. They even filmed their own vision of key moments in the search, including when they seized the car that used to belong to William's foster grandmother, and they distributed that vision to the media along with general vision of searchers doing their work at the dig site. Given it's all wrapped up now, so we're looking at all of this in hindsight, what do you make of that extremely visible strategy? Yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that, actually. So it was really quite a unique approach from my perspective to see such a integrated media presence with that search. As you say, you know, the, the media were, were very embedded in that process from the beginning. There was constant updates, constant media appearances by very senior police who were actually attending on site. Again, that's something I'd, you know, never seen before. The commissioner himself was on site at one point speaking from the area. And they were very confident and very, very bold. And as you say, as the search continued, it became more obvious that, that some of those statements were perhaps not going to be supported with what they found. I was a little bit confused by how strident they were in, in those early days because I was thinking, you know, if they've got such strong intelligence to lead them to make these statements, and now we're several days in, where is this going? Where has this information come from that has made them this confident? And, and how is that now playing out? And I've got to say, you know, my heart was also going out to the Williams loved ones at this stage because they were so confident. And as the days progressed and that confidence waned, certainly in the eyes of the public, then you've got to wonder what impact that would have had on the families who would have obviously still been desperate for answers. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we've always got to remember there are two families involved in this, William's foster family and his birth family, both of whom are obviously desperate for answers, whatever that might be, regardless of recent developments around William's foster parents. But I do want to talk more about this police strategy and the subsequent media coverage, particularly in relation to the reason for this latest search and the theory that police were working on. It was publicly revealed pretty early on in this search that police had developed a new theory, one that had previously been investigated and ruled out by former lead detectives, and that is the foster mother, who has obviously appeared on this podcast several times, that she had something to do with William's death and that it was covered up. Now, the outgoing police commissioner, Mick Fuller, actually said himself on national radio on 2GB at the beginning of the search that police were looking at one person of interest and that he was confident the team could solve it. Now, this was a huge change in tactic after the inquest where police put forward dozens of persons of interest and said no one had been ruled out. So to then suddenly be saying they were only focused on one person, which they say was based on new information, was a huge gear change for the investigation. 
So despite that, police never publicly stated themselves exactly who that person was. All those times they did front the cameras in relation to this search, they never publicly stated that the foster mother was their new suspect or exactly what their new theory was. But having said that, they made no secret of it. They invited the media along to watch as they conducted the search, very obviously geared towards that theory. Not only that, I can tell you members of the New South Wales Police Organisation privately confirmed to reporters who their suspect was and what their theory was. The media didn't just make that assumption and run with it. They did do their due diligence. They knew how serious this allegation or even this suggestion was. This is a woman who until recently was cleared by detectives and was known as the grieving foster mother whose beloved foster son was the victim of an abduction. So they didn't report this new theory lightly. They were told the foster mother was the main person of interest and they believed that William may have died in an accident and his death was then covered up. Of course, that was also then evident by the nature of the searching they were doing at the scene. So, Xanthi, do you think police intended for this theory to go public? And if so, why would they have wanted that? Yeah, this was really, again, quite a surprise to me. So I can't remember exactly when it was, but there was a day when I got five or six calls from different journalists that I knew saying, have you heard? You know, this this rumour went around like wildfire and it happened really fast as if that information had gone to a significant number of journalists and it was just, it was then everywhere. Everyone knew. I've got to say, I was quite shocked by that because, as you say, um, the foster mother had been cleared initially by the detectives and then again when Gary Jubilant had taken over the investigation. So she'd been looked at very carefully twice and excluded twice. I was sitting there and I heard in the inquest that they said that nobody had been ruled out, but certainly there were a significant number of persons of interest. So, you know, this really came from out of the blue for me. And I've been asked about this a number of times. And I've got to say, um, I think I said it to you last time, I've never seen the foster mother say or do anything that led me to feel suspicious at all. And I've been questioned about that by a number of journalists since then. They said, well, obviously, the police must have some reason for this. Um, I do think that they wanted that information to go public because it came from, you know, it went out so quickly to so many people that had come from somewhere as you say people checked that was what was coming out of allegedly of New South Wales police but we still don't know what that's based on and until I see evidence to the contrary I'm sticking with what I've seen with my own eyes and that is that she's done and said nothing suspicious so I'm still waiting still waiting to see what their search was based on their search strategy and their confidence and also why their now main person of interest is the foster mother. And, and I'm hoping that that information will be made public because that's a pretty damaging rumour to be out there. And that must be really hard for them at the moment when we're still waiting for information on what that's based on. I wanted to make it clear here as well. You were blindsided. I was blindsided by this new theory that came out last year. And so were the foster parents. So even well before this new search was announced, there was a story that came out in a News Corp newspaper quoting an unnamed police source that they had a new suspect who had previously been ruled out. They didn't say who that was in the story, but they said that person would soon be re-interviewed. That was back in September, so well before this new search was announced. So they didn't say who it was, but I can tell you at the time, the foster parents had no idea what was coming. They were told by police when that story came out that it wasn't true. We, of course, now know that not only 
was it true, but that they were the suspects or the foster mother specifically. Something they were completely blindsided by. Obviously, police wanted to keep them in the dark about that, and perhaps that was a strategy, particularly as they intended to re-interview the foster mother and no doubt the foster father as well. But once again, the media were tipped off before anyone else in that case. Xanthi, obviously they do seem to be using the media as a strategy, or at the very least, they've got people leaking to the media before anything else happens. Yeah, and I mean, media strategy is now part of investigative strategy, and we've seen that played out in a number of places recently. Cleo Smith, for example, there was a clear media strategy there. We've just seen a different media strategy with Charlize Button, you know, so the police do engage with the media in different ways, depending on what they need from them and the public ultimately at any time. However, I've never seen a strategy where information has been being apparently leaked to the media in this sense. So they're actually, you know, using them to put out kind of rumours to build, I don't know, some sort of case. It's, I've never seen anything like this. I don't really know whether we're ever going to get to the bottom of why the strategy has played out how it has. I hope we do in the coronal inquest, because I think this is potentially very damaging to different individuals. And I'm a little fearful of seeing the way that this has played out to see these kind of rumours and innuendo, you know, in the media so blatantly. And, you know, yet we're still waiting for that information to back it up as to, to why the foster mother specifically is the main person or the only person of interest, as has been made clear. So, yeah, it's um, really unusual. And I just hope they've got something to back it up, because if they don't, you know, what does that mean in terms of policing strategy? Yeah. And after all that went public, painting the foster mother as a person of interest, the only person of interest and in conducting this search where they seemed confident of finding evidence to prove that theory, they found nothing, at least not anything that we know of. We also still don't know what this new information was that led them to this new theory and this new search all these years later. We currently don't know of any evidence or information to support this theory whatsoever. It could be that this search has actually debunked that theory, or it could be that there is some information or evidence police have that we aren't aware of yet that does support their theory. Or perhaps it was all just a strategy that hasn't panned out. We simply don't know at this stage. All we do know is that they still have not charged anyone with William's disappearance or murder, and they have not found his remains, sadly. When the search concluded, police chose not to front the cameras again. Instead, they released a statement saying, further forensic examinations of seized items and a significant quantity of soil remain ongoing. Deputy State Coroner Harriet Graham has been appraised and Strike Force Roseanne detectives continue to prepare a brief for the information of Her Honour, the coroner. The New South Wales Police Force remains committed to finding William Tyrrell and investigations by the Homicide Squad's Strike Force Roseanne are ongoing. So exactly what police do have to support this theory will likely be made public when the inquest inevitably resumes again. At least we hope it will be made public, given how publicly this has played out. I think that it only stands to reason that any evidence that actually supports this theory should be made public. And any evidence they have gathered will need to be at the very least presented to the coroner, and she will determine if there is any merit to it. We don't yet have a date as to when any of that will happen. So, Xanthi, where does this leave the investigation now? Well, you know, it's, um, it's really hard to say, isn't it, from the outside. We've been told that they'll 
be a, you know the coronal inquest will resume. Um, we've been told early this year, but you know we're already what at the end of January now coming up. So when that is, we don't know. My concern, I guess, is that some of that may be held privately. And so some of this information isn't going to be made public. And I think that would be highly problematic because, you know, this is such a high public interest case. And when such serious allegations have been leveled at people involved, I think the public has a right to know. And we're all waiting to see what these allegations are based on. Where this leaves us, I just don't know. We don't know if any evidence was collected that's of forensic relevance. We don't know what the, the dig was based on and the search was based on. So, you know, we're kind of looking in the dark here, aren't we, until the public is told more about what has happened and why. And I hope that the coronal inquest will answer those questions for us. Yeah, as I said, given how publicly and intentionally publicly this has all played out, it would be extremely disappointing for everyone for the public, for the media, for everyone involved to then not be able to hear the evidence that supposedly might support any theory that they had that they then made public, particularly for the foster mother who has been publicly named. You know, I think the public now deserves to know what, if any, evidence there is to support that. Well, more than that, I think in the interest of open justice, the foster mother has a right for the public to know what that was based on too, because, you know, the amount of people who have now said to me, oh, well, have you changed your mind? Because obviously the foster mother is the the primary and sole person of interest. You know, have you, have you changed your mind about her? And I'm like, well, why? You know, I, I haven't seen any evidence to support that. But if, if people's, you know, anecdotal conversations with me or anything to go by, basically the general impression is there's no smoke without fire. But I don't think like that. You know, I wait for the evidence. And if there's going to be any criminal charges laid, you know, there's got to be guilt beyond reasonable doubt. And that evidence has got to be presented in a court. And so in the interest of justice for her, we all need to know what those accusations are based on. Otherwise, you know, people are going to continue to believe that in essence that she's been involved and yet we have no evidence to support that. So I think we have to know I think it's the only just outcome here. That's right. And so far, the only thing we do know is that police at some point thought that she may have been involved. Whether they still believe that, given that as far as we know, they've found no evidence in that search, we don't even know if they still believe that. But at some point they did. That's all we know. We don't know why they believed that. We don't know what that was based on. So, as you said, until we hear the evidence, um, she is innocent until not only proven guilty, but until there's any evidence to even support that, which we don't have at this stage. So, separate from the investigation, I wanted to talk about where this leaves her, where this leaves the foster mother, the foster parents. She has now been publicly named as the main person of interest in this case, yet, as we've said, we don't know any evidence to support that theory. Now, I haven't spoken to her about how she plans to handle this going forward. As we know, they have separate legal cases going on right now, which we will come to later in the episode. But despite this extensive search, no charges have been laid in relation to what happened to William. We can only assume that if police had found conclusive evidence to support any theory, they would have arrested someone. They haven't done that. Sadly, they also didn't find William's remains in the search either. He remains missing. 
Perhaps there will be more evidence to come. Perhaps that will happen in the future. Perhaps there is evidence we don't know about. But right now, that hasn't happened. It's going back to the coroner. It is not being put before a criminal court at this stage. In this country and in most developed countries, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. In this case, she's not even been charged, let alone proven to be guilty. So in looking at what could come next, I wanted to talk about what could happen when someone is publicly named as a suspect in a murder case, but never arrested or charged, when sufficient evidence is never found or put before a court to support a theory police have made public. And in doing that, I wanted to speak to an expert in the field. David Rolfe is a professor at the University of Sydney Law School, and he specialises in a range of topics, including defamation law. So without getting into the specifics of this case, in your professional opinion, what potential legal options would someone have when they've been publicly named as a suspect or a person of interest in a criminal case, but that allegation is never proven or even tested in a criminal court? Well, so every case, of course, depends upon exactly what's been published. So if someone is suspected by police in an investigation, and that's true, then unfortunately, if all that's reported is that the person is suspected by police, then that's a statement of fact and that allegation can usually be proven to be true. The difficulty, of course, is that quite often those sorts of statements will not just sort of be boldly sort of made, they'll be in the context of other material. And so what any given article or report will mean will depend upon exactly what's been published. So if something goes beyond sort of straight factual reporting that, you know, police uh, suspect a particular person or investigating a line of inquiry, if it goes into areas which tend to suggest that there might be reasonable grounds for that, or in fact the person may be guilty, or there's a strong reason to suspect that that person is in fact guilty, then they're the sorts of publications that will tend to give rise to someone being able to sue for defamation. So whenever the media sort of report in a very straight and factual sort of way, they're less likely to expose themselves to liability. It's where you have material that might add a bit of colour but might convey stronger and more serious meanings that people who are suspected by police or investigated by police might have a remedy against media reports and defamation. So what about a scenario where police have made public not only that they have one person of interest, but also what their theory is in terms of how and why they believe they may have committed the crime, but they never actually charge that person or present any evidence to support that theory? Are they opening themselves up to any sort of legal action in the future? Yes, and so there's a good recent example of that. There's an appeal being heard at the moment in Western Australia in the Lloyd Rainey defamation claim against the state of Western Australia. And that arises out of a press conference given by police where the police provided information about whether they suspected Lloyd Rainey to have been involved in the disappearance and murder of his wife. And the police in that particular case were ordered to pay very substantial amounts of damages, including a multi-million dollar claim for economic loss. So police can expose themselves to liability for defamation to suspects um, in investigations, particularly where those suspects are cleared either at the investigation stage or are never pursued or acquitted in court. And what about a scenario where police never publicly state themselves who their person of interest is, but they privately leak to the media who it is, as well as inviting the media along to witness their operational activity, which strongly suggests who their person of interest is? 
Well, I suppose the two ways that that, or the two issues that might arise there are if the media get sued for defamation, they could always try and join the police to those proceedings to share responsibility for the liability, which is probably sort of in a practical sense unlikely. I can't see a media outlet doing that. Or the other alternative is that presumably because there are police protocols about how information is disclosed to the public, there are various policies and protocols. This is not a really well-developed area of law in Australia at the moment, although there's a current UK Supreme Court decision about whether a suspect, a person suspected of a crime, has a right to privacy that they can enforce against investigating authorities. But the position under Australian law is not terribly well-developed in relation to that. Every case will turn upon exactly what the police have, have said publicly. And so if the police have been well-advised by lawyers before they make any sort of public statement, and quite often they'll pick and choose their words very carefully for precisely this reason. It may be that what the police sort of say, have said publicly may be defensible because it may be true, and so it may not actually convey the more serious meanings of reasonable suspicion of guilt or guilt. And so this is a really difficult area that people may be under a reputational cloud but they may not necessarily have a remedy that they can bring necessarily against the people who have been investigating them. And that's why you've seen with other high-profile crimes, what tends to happen is that um, people who are acquitted or cleared or never charged but still suspected bring um, defamation proceedings not necessarily against the police but against some of the more, uh, some of the looser media reporting. And that can be a more successful avenue. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Rolf. Now, as we mentioned in the last episode, William's foster parents have each been charged with one count of assaulting a child. As we also mentioned, those charges are completely separate from the investigation into William's disappearance. The alleged assault occurred recently and has nothing to do with William whatsoever. Just wanted to make that clear again. They both appeared in court on those charges in mid-December when the majority of the hearing actually focused on the media's application to lift the blanket suppression order, which is currently in place, which prevents us from reporting any details of the allegations. Obviously, I was there to watch the hearing and in relation to the charges themselves, all I can tell you at this stage is that they both pleaded not guilty to the assault. They are currently both being represented by two separate lawyers and from what I've been told, their cases are slightly different, though they are still living together and remain united as they always have throughout the past seven years. Interestingly, the lawyer representing William's foster mother also flagged with the court that she will be making an application for her case to be dealt with under the Mental Health Act. This means they will argue she suffers from a mental health or cognitive impairment and she cannot be convicted or found guilty because of that condition. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean admitting to any of the facts of the case. It just means the court would acknowledge the defendant is or was mentally impaired, but again... We cannot tell you what the alleged facts of the case are at this stage. It's also possible William's foster father may make a similar application, but that hasn't happened yet. So, Xanthi, that application came as quite a surprise to us all. I just wanted to make it clear that that application doesn't necessarily mean that someone is admitting to any of the facts of the case. 
It's simply an acknowledgement that they are suffering from a mental health condition at the time that these alleged crimes happened and that they're asking the court to acknowledge that. Yeah, exactly. So what that means is they, they may still plead not guilty, but if it goes forward and if it's found that those charges, I won't say if they're found guilty because a criminal conviction wouldn't be recorded in that case, but what it basically means is the court acknowledges that they were suffering from, I guess the best way to describe it is diminished responsibility. So they can still be culpable. It's just that there's something um, that was affecting them at the time that would have diminished their responsibility. And at that stage, there would be a plan put in place for treatment, and it's basically a diversionary mechanism, so they wouldn't have a criminal conviction recorded against them. So it's really just kind of setting up the background from their perspective um, if this does go forward. So the next hearing for the criminal charges and to further progress that mental health application was adjourned to February 22nd, which brings us to the next part of the hearing, which ran for a lot longer than the official proceedings around the actual charges, and that was the media's fight against the suppression orders in this case. A lawyer appeared at the hearing on behalf of all major media outlets, including ours, to argue against a blanket non-publication order that's in place. However, the magistrate had already evidently made a decision prior to the hearing about how she wanted the case to go ahead. The media's lawyer argued that a blanket suppression order was not necessary in this case, partly because any allegation involving a child is covered by legislation designed to protect that child's identity anyway, and that any criminal proceedings in open court should be able to be publicly reported on by the media in the interest of open justice. This case obviously has significant public interest and the lawyer argued the media should be allowed to keep the public informed. However, in delivering her decision, the magistrate questioned why there was so much public interest in this particular assault case, given it's not relevant to the William Tyrrell investigation. She told the court she had noticed the relentless media attention on the William Tyrrell case, even when there was nothing to report and added the risk that the foster parents are connected to the disappearance of William Tyrrell is significant. She said that some recent headlines in the media have carried a clear inference that the foster parents are suspicious because of these allegations, and that's not fair or accurate. They are entitled to the presumption of innocence. She also told the court there is a risk of connecting two separate investigations and seeking to make some casual connection between the two. That is the role of the investigators and not the media or the public, and that there is a very real risk of harm to both the foster parents, but also inadvertently to the child involved. So she upheld that non-publication order, meaning we are still prevented from reporting any of the details of the case, even when they are heard in open court. The media is appealing that decision in the Supreme Court, and we don't know yet when a decision will be made on that appeal. So Xanthi, by all accounts, this non-publication order is very broad and it's quite rare. This is what our lawyers tell us. Why would a magistrate take such an extreme step in a case like this? Well, I think it's because of the, you know, the the public interest in this and the media reporting in this is really, you know, it's really unique in terms of the level. You know, everybody in the country knows about William Tyrrell. Everybody recognises the image of the little boy in the Spider-Man suit. You know, you talk to anyone, they know about this. And I'm kind of on the fence here. Like, I totally agree with the position of open justice. If it's going to be a criminal matter in court, the public has a right to hear about that. 
totally support that position. However, in this particular instance, there is such a danger of this alleged assault charge being attached to William's disappearance in the minds of the public that should that progress, should the disappearance of William and any potential harm that's come to him progress to criminal charges against the foster mother, then the danger is in the minds of the public that, you know, this she's already been demonstrated to be violent to children and therefore inherently guilty of harming William. Then the likelihood of her receiving a fair trial are diminished to the point where it couldn't happen. So I totally understand where the position that's been taken here. And I think it's they're trying to try to really fine line to ensure that justice can occur, even balancing that against open justice, which is what the, the media is obviously pushing for, the principal and the public have a right to know. So I'm kind of, I agree with both positions here, which is really difficult because they're co totally contradictory, but I think it's such a unique unusual case that that I may well have made the same decision in the in the interest of justice. Yes, and it will be interesting to see what the Supreme Court decides in relation to this because this suppression order at the moment is so blanket and preemptive. And that was the the lawyer's main issue with it was that um it doesn't even allow us to apply, you know, on a case by case basis to report some of these details or to have access to some of the documents as we go along. It's sort of a blanket, you can't report anything that's said in open court or in documents about this case at all. So it will be interesting to see what position the Supreme Court takes on this, given that there is, as you said, a huge risk that these two cases will be linked when they are absolutely um, irrelevant to one another. They've already been linked in the minds of the public, haven't they? The, the fact that these charges were laid, I think it was even the same day that this search, the new search was announced for William, inevitably has linked these in people's minds anyway. And anything that reinforces that is breaching that right to a fair trial based on only the evidence that may at some point be presented in court. If I guarantee if I went out and asked people now and said, you know, do you think these two things are relevant to, to link them together? They're going to say, yeah. And that is a significant worry. So it's already happened. And we, we have to do everything to try not to reinforce that. You're right. And, and the link is also partly because the strike force Rosanne, which is obviously the strike force that is investigating the disappearance of William Tyrrell, is the strike force that made these arrests and charges. They announced these charges. They were the arresting officers. And in fact, the officer who appeared for the police in the latest hearing is a strike force Rosanne detective. So, you know, that link has been made by the police strike force being involved in these charges anyway. But the magistrate is obviously trying to prevent that being reinforced at every opportunity. Yeah, and I, and I would totally agree with that position. And I fear that it's already too late that in the minds of the general public, who ultimately would be the jury, should this, these charges progress, that it's already too late. You know, they've already made up their minds. And that is a very dangerous position for anybody to be in. I believe the justice system generally works, and that is not the kind of situation that that I want to see occur. And I don't want to see anyone in that position when guilt has been, you know, decided in the minds of the public before we've seen any evidence to support that. I think it's extremely dangerous for all of us. Any of us could end up in this situation. 
And again, these charges have been laid. That's all we know at this stage. We don't know any evidence to support what might have happened. We can't even tell you what has alleged to have happened. It's just that this assault charge has been laid and that is all we know. So all of that is still yet to be determined by a court. And one of the other reasons the magistrate gave for these non-publication orders was to protect the identities of the foster parents and to protect them from further harm as they are now being targeted by people who've been able to find out where they live or how to contact them or how to reach them. And we know from previous episodes of this podcast, they were already being targeted by abuse before all of this. Even when the police were telling the public that they were innocent, they spoke about the toll that it had taken on them having people target them who believed they might have been involved and the lengths that some of those people had gone to to harass them. I mean, one man even ended up being arrested and charged well before all of this for stalking the foster father. So it's no surprise this is a consideration given these charges have now been laid against them. I mean, Xanthi, they must be dealing with a lot of this right now. Yeah, absolutely. And they must be suffering significantly as a result of all this public attention that is inevitably being laid at them because it's not hard to find out who people are ultimately, is it? It was, it was inevitable that some people would do that. And don't forget, there's another child involved in all of this as well. And I just hate to think what she must be going through watching all of this unfold so publicly and see these accusations being leveled and you know the whole thing is just heartbreaking on so many levels. So as the assault charges make their way through the court process we will obviously stay across any developments whether we're able to report on them or not. It is expected to take some time though. COVID has caused significant delays in the court hearings and throughout the process and we've been told it could be the end of the year before the charges are even given a hearing. Separately, in relation to the William Tyrrell investigation, we are expecting another coronial hearing to be scheduled this year to hear any new evidence that may have been gathered in this most recent search. We don't have a date for that yet, and I have been told by the parties involved that they also haven't been given any potential dates yet. So it seems that that has not yet been scheduled. We don't know when that's going to be, but obviously, as always, we will be there to get any updates on the case. So, Xanthi, as I've mentioned several times, the big question remains whether or not police do have any evidence to support their new theory, and if so, what that evidence is. How confident are you that we're going to find out what that is this year? Well, I mean, at the moment, I'm not very confident, to be honest with you. I would have imagined, as you mentioned earlier, that if evidence was recovered, that led them to be able to charge somebody, that would have happened by now. They took the grandmother's car away. We saw imagery of that. Obviously, that would have been prioritized in terms of the forensic evaluation. You know, the, the theory that perhaps William was moved in that car, if that had borne out, I'm sure we would have, you know, charges would have been laid and we would know about that. So at the moment, I'm not at all confident that we are going to find out what, if anything, was found. I hope we do. But at the moment, the whole case is unravelling so unusually that, you know, there's just no precedent for this. So I'm just watching it from the outside, hoping that we find out what happened, because ultimately, everyone wants to know what happened to William. William is a little boy who's still missing, and that is what everybody should be focused on. And so, you know, I do hope we find out what happened and what has been recovered, but not holding my breath. 
It did seem that this was a sort of a, a Hail Mary from the police, you know, seven years later. They were confident they'd finally got it and unfortunately they didn't find William. As far as we know, they haven't found anything to suggest what happened to him. As you said, if they'd found compelling evidence, they would have charged someone. That hasn't happened. It's going back to the coroner, which is obviously what happens when you don't have sufficient evidence to charge anyone in a criminal court. So regardless of what has happened to William, regardless of what anyone thinks might have happened to William, all, all of us want is to get to the truth, whatever that may be. And unfortunately, despite these recent developments, it does seem that we are no closer to getting to that truth. I hope one day soon we will be. But the tragedy of this latest development is that it does seem to have potentially ended in yet another dead end. And it's tragic for his family and it's tragic for him that we are here again. I do hope sometime in the future we can bring you some answers. Thank you so much, Santhi, for being with me again to discuss all of this. Yeah, it was good to be here. You know, I just um, one day hope we're sitting here discussing when we have answers and we know what happened to William and, and those answers can be given to the families. Yeah, I certainly hope that um, one day we're doing that as well. And as always, we will stay across this case and keep our listeners updated on any major developments as they happen. Thanks for listening. I'm Leah Harris and this is Where's William Tyrrell?